God will not fail you because he cannot lie. His promises are sure. Our biggest failure is, is our refusal to trust. I can remember one time we were on vacation, and my family loves to play practical jokes on me. I'm the one who's naive, and the whole time I was growing up, they would scare me, they would pull jokes, they would get me to believe in stuff, because I just trusted that they would tell me the truth. You know, you should be able to do that with your family, by the way, people that you love. Some of you have caught on to my weakness in this area, and you've tested that over the past year, and I trusted you too, and I don't anymore. And um, I, can remember, I can remember one time, I mean, I was probably in college, I should have known better, but I was in college, and my family, for years, they would go to the beach for a week for vacation, and, and we would drive down to Myrtle Beach or Emerald Isle or Surfside, one of those great places I would like to be at right now. And, and, um, and, and we were at the beach one year, and we were swimming in the pool, and we'd always go in together, about 12 or 14 of us. We'd get a house with a swimming pool, and, and uh, those days I didn't have to pay for it. We haven't done that in a while. And, and it wasn't a nice living with your parents. And, um, and, and, and we'd have a swimming pool, and we were out there swimming, and and, uh, and I think another house that year was sharing a pool with us. It was like two homes, and we were both sharing one pool. And the other family was out. There's probably like 12 or 13 of them. There's probably like 30 of us out at the pool. And I was out there swimming, just having a good time. We were playing volleyball in the pool. I was really getting a tan. And, um, <laughs> and we were just having a great time. And my uncle, you may have met him at the installment service. My uncle was kind of a bigger guy on a walker. He's a pastor now. And, He's not getting around real well these days, but he is a practical joker, and he loves to pull things over on me all the time. And I'm sitting there swimming, and, and my Uncle Bobby, he looked over at me. Now, he's a pastor, and he should know better. And he looked over at me, and he said, Hey, Mark, come here, come here, come here, come here. And uh, I'm like, what do you want? I feel like you're bothering me. And, and there, there are people all in the pool, and he's doing it real loud. And so now, like, the other family is looking over at me. And you know a redhead, we don't stay white very long. It turns from white to red. And everybody's looking at me like, what's going on with the redheaded guy? And, and uh, he just kept yelling, hey, Mark, come here, come here, come here. I'm like, no, no, no. He's like, you're making a scene. Just come here. I'm like, okay. So I swam over to the corner of the pool that he's at. And he goes, well, I just wanted you over here. And I'm like, Okay. Okay, is there something going on? Well, now the entire family is like looking over at me. It's like everybody knows something's up. About that time, he screams. and He goes, what is that in the water? Now, I have to be really careful because I want to have good taste, especially as a pastor preaching from a pulpit this morning. But all about that time, I saw something float to the top of the water. I'm not going to describe to you what I saw. <laughs> but let's just say this. I jumped so high out of that water. I mean, I was, I was up out of the pool on the sidewalk. The, the other family that's watching is busting out laughing. I am so embarrassed. But I won't go into great detail what I saw in the water, but let's just say this. A Babe Ruth candy bar <laughs> looks totally different in a swimming pool than it does in real life. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. And my family has laughed about that for years. Hey, Mark, you remember the year that we made you come over? You were so dumb to come over. La, 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 la. Look what we did to you. You're so gullible. Oh, it's fun. So, but I remember that day being lied to. And not only was I lied to, but I was terribly laughed at and mocked. And I thought about that humorous illustration of thinking about, you know, it, wasn't, it was funny once I got over it. It wasn't funny at the time because at, at the rate at which I come out of the pool, a lot of dangerous things could have happened. And, and uh, <laughs> I got up out of the pool and that other family, which I do not know, I mean, I'm sure they're still talking about it. And, and I thought about, you know, it's really not fun to be humiliated. It's not fun to be laughed at. It's not fun to be lied to. 
It's not fun to be tricked. It's not fun to be betrayed. And I wondered in my own life spiritually how many times Satan sits back and just has a laughing party on what he's thrown into my life and I've taken the bait. And now I'm wasting precious time, energy, and resources on things that don't really matter. You know, it's not fun to be laughed at, but I'm concerned that as a church and as Christians sometimes we're laughed at more than we can possibly imagine. This morning I want to bring to you a message entitled, The Top Ten Lies. Now this is in my opinion, I'm no expert, this is, this is Mark's opinion. The Top Ten Lies the Average American Christian Believes. The Top Ten Lies the Average American Christian Believes. I want you to look at our passage this morning. In John chapter 8, verse 42, it's a very serious passage. There's a very serious exchange going on between Jesus and the Pharisees, the, the righteous, the self-righteous people. They weren't really saved. They were the churchgoers. They were full of morals. They were the preachers, but they were not born again. They had not experienced amazing grace. They were not children of God. They were still enemies of God. They were, they were followers of the evil one. And the Bible makes it clear. The Bible says some stiff language. I get this all the time. Aren't we all children of God? Well, we've all been created by God, but the Bible makes it clear we're not all His children in a spiritual sense. The Bible makes it clear that before we come to know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our sins have separated us from God, and we're enemies of God, and, and we are wallowing in our sin, we're living for ourselves, and the author of sin is Satan himself. And the Bible says here that these Pharisees are having this heated exchange between Jesus, and they're actually like mocking Him, saying, hey, you're not the Son of God. You are not God. How dare you say this? Aren't you the one who was born of fornication? I mean, there's one of the tests, one of the hundreds of reasons we know the Bible's true right there. Uh, up until Jesus was in his 30s, people couldn't figure out how he was born of Mary. And so they're saying, hey, she wasn't married. This was, this was out of wedlock. We know it was the virgin birth. In fact, there in verse 41... Jesus says, you do the deeds of your father. And then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So they're mocking him. They're like, hey, we weren't born in sin. Look what happened in verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Here's what, God, here's what Jesus is saying. If you have a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sin, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, received him as Lord and your Savior, you're now reconciled to God. And if you have a relationship with God, you would love Jesus. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. God sent me. I am God the Son. He has sent me to ransom sinners, to die for sinners. That would be all of us. Verse 43, why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. Here's what he's saying. If you're not a Christian, if you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you, you struggle to understand what God is saying. And then if you're obstinate and rebellious against what God's saying, you don't listen to the word. It, the things of the world, your own heart, choke out the truth of God. In verse 44, Jesus says some bold things. Look what he says here, full of courage, but also love. You are of your father, the devil. <laughs> what a sermon. Wow, Jesus, way to bring on the crowds. You're of your father, the devil. Don't you like that? You're of your father, the devil. That's who you're following. And the desires of your father you want to do. Not only are you of your father, the devil, you're still lost in your sin, you're still rebelling against God, you're still living a life that's all about yourself. You have no desire to be right with God. You also do what your father, the devil, does. And looks at, look how he describes the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. You're saying, when was that? Well, the day that he looked at God and said, I want to be like the Most High. 
God, because of his pride, which is the root of all sin, cast him out of heaven. And then he tempted Adam and Eve to sin, the human race to fall into sin. He says he's been a murderer from the beginning. You say, murderer? How's he a murderer? Because the moment you sin, you die. Man has been born in sin. That's why all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. The reason we have funerals, the reason there is death, is because we are sinners. But Jesus says you can be saved from the spiritual death. You can be saved from eternal death when you turn to Christ. Notice what else he says about Satan. He says he does not stand in the truth. Satan never tells you the truth, ever. Because there is no truth in him. He's the exact opposite of God. God can't tell a lie. He is absolute truth. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. Satan is the exact opposite. He never, ever tells the truth. At best, it's a half-truth, and that's still a lie. Jesus says when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He speaks from his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. You know, that statement right there should make us cry. Verse 43, Jesus says, because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me, but you take, this, you take him for what he says. Now, I'm a Christian. I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior at the age of five, I believe. I believe I truly understood that day that I was a sinner, I was in need of a Savior, and I needed the Lord Jesus. I've had 28 years of walking with Jesus, some good times, some bad times, some very difficult times. But I want to tell you, every day of my life, the one thing that God's working on me is is sanctification. That's me becoming like Jesus. And you see, every day God's trying to help me, and He's trying to help you become like Jesus, which means every day I've got to be putting off the lies that I believe. The sin that I hold on to. The false security that I surround my life by. That verse right there should make us cry, because Jesus says, I'm the only one who tells you the truth, but you don't believe the truth. He says, not only do I tell you the truth, but the truth will set you free. And I want you to think this morning, if you're a Christian here, of all the things, even though we know Jesus, even though God's still working on us, even though there's a new heart produced in us, where now we have a desire to serve the Lord, we have a desire to not live for ourselves and to live for Him, think about all the things in your life just in this past week that, at their very root, are a lie. They don't match up with Scripture, but you're still holding on to them. You still have a closet for it. Only so much of your life is Christian, and then the rest over here is the stuff from the world, and the stuff that Satan has thrown out, and the stuff of your old sinful nature that you still hold on to and you find security in. And Jesus cries out to us in those areas. He said, Don't you believe me? I'm the only one who ever tells you the truth 100% of the time, but you don't believe me. But you take this guy's word for it, you take the world's advice for it. When it comes to your money, you don't look at what the scriptures say about your money. You find out what the world says. And what the world says, how you should plan and save and do with your money. But when was the last time you looked at what God's word said to do with your money? Hey, when was the last time you looked at God's word and and, and looked at how you truly find security in life? But you don't look at God's word to find out how you can find security in life. You look at what all the world says that you need to find security in life. Jesus says, I tell you the truth every time, but you don't believe me. You believe the old wicked one. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 46, which of you convicts me of sin? I mean, what a statement. 
Jesus was not just a moral teacher. Jesus was not a prophet. He was God in the flesh. He says, I'm sinless, and I'm going to call all of you on the carpet right here in front of everybody. Which one of you can bring one charge of sin against me? None of you. I'm the spotless Lamb of God. That's why I'm the only one who can bear the sins of the world and, and, and grant you forgiveness. He says, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. He's saying, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're walking with the Lord, and you're spending time with God, and you have a desire to obey by His grace, you hear God's words and you get it. But therefore, if you don't hear, you're not of God. Those are, that's, a, that's a strict warning there. If you never care about what God says, if you have no desire to find out what God's will is, if you have no desire to find out what God's perspective is on something, you better watch out because you may not even be of God. You may not have a relationship with God. And look, it just gets worse. Verse 48, Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, this is thick stuff. Do you see this major tension going on here? The religious leaders look at him and say, after he says all that, Hey, don't we rightly say that the reason you're able to do your miracles is because you're not from God, you're demon-possessed. I mean, you're talking about spiritual warfare? This is battle. They are so blaspheming Jesus Christ, they say, you, uh, no, wait, wait, we know what your secret is, you're demonic. Jesus said, no, 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 I'm not the one who's demonic, you're demonic. As I read this passage, it's tough for us to take in. But there's major tension here because there's a major battle. And can I tell you something? Every one of us in this room will go through a battle this week. Spiritual warfare. Constant thinking to ourselves, in what I'm living for today, in the choice I'm about to make, in the way I'm about to spend my time, in the way I'm about to use my resources, is this based on truth, Jesus Christ and His way, or is this based on what I was saved from if I'm a Christian? And Jesus is constantly crying out, won't you listen to the truth and take that in? Well, I came up with ten lies that I think that I have fallen prey to so many times that I think I see in the average American church and the average American Christian so often. I'm going to give these to you quickly this morning because there are ten. And I'm going to, stop all, I'm going to start off with the least to the greatest. Here's lie number ten. Top ten lies the average American Christian believes. And here's lie number ten. Satan is not really at work. Satan is not really at work. Many times as Christians, we can find ourselves forgetting that we're in a constant war, that there's a consistent enemy that seeks to destroy our lives. We forget that Satan and his demons are very much alive, and they thrive on causing mass destruction in my family and in my church and in my life. Naturalism and evolutionary thoughts have so impacted the church that we believe something is not there unless we can see it i got a question for you this morning, and some of you are going to think, this, pa this pastor is he's wacky, man, and what he's getting ready to say. No, I'm telling you, if the Bible is true, what I'm about to say is so true that it's scary. Satan is not really at work. The Bible says he's very much at work. The Bible says he seeks around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. The Bible says so many other things I'm going to tell you in just a moment, but I want to ask you a question. How would your prayer life change if you could see the demons that come into your house and try to tempt your kids and your wife and yourself to do evil? How would your prayer life change if, if for those of you who are my age and you've got young kids, if you could see the demons that come in your house at dinner time and try to tempt your kids to do evil? 
How, how would your prayer life change if you could see the demons that show up at church on Sunday morning that try to distract and try to snatch away the word so that by the time we get out to the parking lot, we can't even remember what was preached about? We've soaked in the lie that we can overlook so much of the world and so much of the entertainment that we absorb and allow our children to absorb. But if we could see the demons that are assigned just to the movie industry and the music industry and the internet industry and so much, we would gasp. Satan tries to appear as an angel of light and convinces us that he's not that bad and that he's not even there, that he's not even real. But when we combat lies, we have to look at the truth. And the Bible says this, in Mark chapter 4, verse 15, these will not be on the screen this morning, I don't think, but here, here we go. Mark chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus says, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. The Bible says that when you come to church on Sunday mornings and you hear the word of God, or you hear the word of God teach, there are messengers of Satan, there are demons whose primary job is to snatch that word away from you before it gets in your heart and, and cultivates obedience. Can you remember times that by Wednesday you can't even remember what was preached about? Can you think of times where in the morning you spent time in the Word and by noon, if somebody asked you, you could not come up with it to save your life? Part of that is spiritual warfare. The Bible says this too. The Bible says that Satan hinders all the time. In fact, he hindered some great, great Christians like Paul. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul said, I wanted to come to you, speaking to the church there at Thessalonica. He said, time and time again, I tried to come to you to minister the Word, but Satan hindered us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. I'm telling you, here's the deal this morning. All I've got to offer you is the Word of God. That's either true or it's not. If the Bible is true, here's what it says. There are armies and armies of demonic forces out to destroy this church out to destroy your family, out to destroy your life, and they don't grow weary, they don't grow tired, there are 24-hour terrorists that you must be on guard against. And so when you see so many Christians that care very little about prayer, one thing that you can result from that and cultivate from that is they are not taken very seriously that Satan is alive and well and wants to destroy their life. Because one thing I've learned so far in my Christian life is I have no chance against demonic forces in my life except that I pick up the Word of God and by prayer fight back. Sometimes we can go days, we can go weeks without spending time with the Lord and Satan just mows us over. Here's a top ten lie that the average American Christian believes. Satan's not really at work. And the Bible makes it clear he is. Here's lie number nine. Lie number nine that I believe pervades most churches in America today goes like this. God does not do the impossible today. God does not do the impossible in the 21st century. So many churches believe that their God is not almighty. So many churches live as if their God can do nothing supernatural anymore at all. So many churches live like God is not in the saving business today. My home church, man, we live like that. I gave a testimony Wednesday night. My home church fought and, 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 and lived so carnally for so many years. In 25 years of me going to my home church, I saw one adult come to a saving relationship in Jesus Christ. One. And the day that happened, we all about fell over because we forgot that that's what church was about. 
I don't know what we were doing, but we forgot about that. I never forget one time I went to my pastor. I mean, I was on fire for the Lord. I was, I was in Bible college, and I was, I was growing, and man, I wanted to go witness. I had such a burden for my hometown. My hometown was about 1,200 people. So every time I make fun of all you Stanley folks, remember I came from a place like that. And uh, Luray is a metropolis compared to my hometown. And man, I had such a burden for my town. And man, one of the hardest ways to witness for me personally has been door to door when they're not expecting you. That is really tough. Or they mistake you for other people. <laughs> and so I was, I never forget, I was in Bible college and they were teaching us how to go door to door, knock on the door and just start spiritual conversations with people. And it's so tough because people hate that. And in today's time, it gets even harder because people are scared, et cetera, et cetera. I never forget, my church was so not evangelistic so cold that I never will forget going to my pastor one day in his office. I was all fired up, and I said, his name was Mark, too. I said, hey, Pastor Mark, I said, uh, I've got such a burden. I said, would you mind if I just got some information about our church and went to a neighborhood and just knocked on doors and invited people to our church? And he said, uh, yeah, I would mind. I was like, like why? I'm not going to embarrass the church or anything. I mean, I just want to invite him to church. Uh, let's wait on that. Do you know that never happened? To this day, I can't tell you. I need to call him up and ask him why he told me to wait. It never happened. Let's, let's wait on that. We'll do something like that later. It never happened. There was such a non-expectancy of God to do anything. The Bible tells me a great fact. God does still do the impossible. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can even ask or think, according to the power that works in us, that's the Holy Spirit, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I know I forget I had a time where a lady came to me and she said, Pastor Mark, I've been praying for a family member to get right with God and come to know Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, and we've been praying for them for years week it happened and the very next words out of her mouth was God is the God of the impossible can I tell you we're a blessed church because over the past year we're seeing the impossible not just happen weekly we're seeing it happen daily you get you get down on your knees don't thank God for your pastor don't even thank God for one another you just thank God for being God and blessing our church we are seeing the impossible happen in our church daily people coming to know Jesus Christ we're getting just little seeds of the book of Acts. I can remember times at my home church where I'd read the book of Acts and I'm thinking, God just doesn't do that anymore. Praise God that I've been in a church the past year where He still does it. He's the God of the impossible. What thing do you have in your life that you feel like God cannot handle? The Bible says that He can do abundantly above all that you can even ask or think. Here's lie number eight. Here's the lie number eight that we've gulfed down and it's this, busy is better Busy is better. Lie number eight. Busy is better. While the Bible does not promote laziness and urges us to live to the glory of God, in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, it tells us that as Christians, we should not lag in diligence. We should boil in our hearts. We should serve the Lord with all we've got. The Bible does not promote laziness. Let me make that clear. But we also need to understand the need to rest and be still with the Lord. Everyone is busy. Here's the normal reply when you ask somebody today how they're doing. Hey, how are you doing this week? It's been busy. How many of you heard that this week? How many of you said that to somebody this week? <laughs> that is the new norm. The new norm is this. Hey, how's things going? <sighs> been busy. Some of you have walked up to me and asked me this week how I'm doing. That was my reply. <laughs> been busy. 
Satan has led us to believe that busy is better, and it's not. It comes with a balance. Families in the church are very rarely having dinner together, more or less quality time with God. We can't even remember the last time we prayed with our kids. Due to our constant desire to please men, to overcommit, to check the list off, and to get to more important things, we can't even remember the last time that we spent time just quiet before God in prayer or even fasting. I mean, that almost sounds radical. And hungering for God through meditating on the Word, much of that has become non-existent in the church. And the result is there's very little revival in the church today because we don't spend any time with the vine. We're too busy. And while we're more busy, and while the schedules are full, I can remember a day where it used to be, hey, summer's a time of relaxation. Now it's like, oh, boy, my summer's busy. Oh, spring is a good time to catch up. Boy, is spring busy. Oh, man, Christmas time, that's a good time to catch up with family. Forget Christmas, man, I don't even want to go there. Now it's just busy all the time. And we're spiritually anemic because of it. We get up in the morning, and the first thought on our mind is, what have I got to do? And we go day after day after day with that, and there's no time with Jesus, and we are so thirsty on the inside, and we can't even figure out what's wrong. Busy is not better. Psalm chapter 46, verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. Take time to be still and bask in my presence. I love what Jesus did as an example. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 the Bible says immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Jesus literally took the people and said, go, just go. All right, I've ministered to you long enough right now. Now I've got to draw back and do something that's even more important. He sends them away. And I want to tell you, that's difficult for me. That's difficult for me because in my pastoral mind, I'm thinking, no, no, we can't send people away. There's so many needs. We just can't even get to them all. Or I'm going to offend them if I send them away. Or what if I send them away and they don't come back and talk about it later? Jesus said, hey, send them away. Time's up. And the Bible says when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. I'm telling you, Jesus is the epitome of how we should schedule our lives. Jesus is telling some of us, especially those of us who are type A personalities, to take all the things on our list and push it aside for a little while. Seek first the kingdom of God and let the rest of it fall into place. I'm telling you, some of us in this room, we are spiritually dry, we are spiritually thirsty, and the reason is, is because we've chosen to cheat. You always choose to cheat with your time. The problem is we cheat the wrong thing. Busy is not better. You want to get it imbalanced. Here's lie number seven. Parents, it's okay if you're not the primary spiritual shepherds of your children. Lie number seven. Parents, it's okay if you're not the primary spiritual shepherds of your children. Number seven. <laughs> I'm sorry. You say, Pastor, what in the world are you talking about? Let me tell you, in 14 years of full-time Christian vocational ministry, I see most parents wanting to farm out their biggest responsibility. Hey, I send my kids to church so they can teach them about God. For some of you, you have the great privilege of sending your children to a Christian school. I send my kids to Christian school so they can teach them about God. I, 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 I send them to children's church so they can hear about God there. Let me tell you something. While that is true, and while the church partners with parents to help your children become all that God wants them to be, parents, you have the first responsibility to be the spiritual shepherds of your children. The Bible tells us, 
In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. The Bible tells us that from the time we get up to the time we go to bed, we're to be teaching our children God's way. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Help your children learn about Jesus, but not just learn about Jesus, help them learn how to know Jesus personally. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 19, the father shall make known your truth to the children. Parents, your number one responsibility in the lives of your children is help them cultivate a walk with Jesus. Can I be very transparent with you about something? My son, who's in third grade, he now knows how to read very, very well. All right? My first grade daughter, she knows how to read very, 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 very well. And I, I noticed the other day that while we've been teaching our children how to sit down and have time with the Lord, how to learn how to do morning devotions and things like that, Oh, man, I am so noticing how my children do not want to do that. Anybody ever been there? All right, yeah, a few parents that are honest, okay? A few parents that don't have perfect kids. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm going to tell you, it is a strain. You say, oh, pastor, I thought everything was the Brady Bunch at your house. I thought it was a bunch of spiritual Brady Bunch. Man, your kids get up and they're quoting Bible verses while they're brushing their teeth. I thought that's what happened at your house. No, that's not what happens. I can sit down with my son and I can sit down beside him and say, hey, Garrett, here's why it's so important to spend time in God's word. Garrett, Satan is after you just like he's after dad. I'm not telling you anything that dad doesn't have to do. And there will be days where my son, man, he gets up all by himself and spends time with the Lord. And he comes walking in. He's beat, he's beat me to the breakfast table and he's already, he's already spent time with the Lord. And I'm like, oh, thank you, God. And my, and my son's writing down on a piece of paper, hey, dad, here's what God taught me today. And then there are weeks where something's not right. We're like pulling tooth and nail to get our children to sit down and spend time with the Lord. Or they're just rushing through it so they can get to something else. And my heart cries out to them because I see how desperately and how much more I need to pray for my kids to have a heart for God. But you know what I've noticed? When mom and dad are excited about God and we're around the dinner table instead of talking about the frustrations of the day, but we're talking about what God's doing in our life, I start watching my little ones and they start getting a hunger for God. And all of a sudden, all by themselves, they're wanting to read God's word. I want to tell you, my number one responsibility as a parent is to help my children know Jesus Christ. And if you have kids, that's your number one responsibility as a parent. Don't farm that responsibility out. Here's lie number six. Lie number six, the church will grow without its members witnessing. The church will grow without its members telling others about Jesus. I believe there are some churches out there that just believe, hey, one day we're just going to grow. One day, man, people are just going to flock to our church. One day, it's just all going to happen. But we never tell people about Jesus Christ. We never invite them to church. We never tell them what Jesus is doing in our life. And I want to tell you, the Bible makes it clear we have a part in this. We're to open our mouths and openly share about Jesus. In Acts chapter 8, verse 25, it says, When they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Someone had to go preach. In Acts chapter 8, verse 40, Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine so that they will be drawn to me. And then in Romans chapter 10, Paul says, How shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? What's the Bible telling us? It's not just going to happen if you don't share. 
So many churches in America today are full of Christians who can't even remember the last time they told anybody about Jesus Christ. But we think, hey, one day it's just going to happen. The church is going to grow. Mm-mm. God has commissioned us to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. One verse that continually keeps sticking out in my heart in life is I see people getting saved of our church. I got, we got college students in our college class right now. I'm telling you, they've been transformed. They have just been transformed. And one verse I keep going back to in Romans chapter 1 is this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Hey, what does it do to you when you see somebody who's just been transformed and there's no explanation for it but Jesus Christ? I used to be this, I used to do this, but today I am this. Amazing grace, my chains are gone. But you know what? Somebody has to tell that person. How many of you, when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, someone told you about Him? Raise your hand. Almost everybody in this room. And we forget that when it comes to our responsibility to tell other people. Here's lie number five. We'll finish these quickly. Church or better off life. I want to change that this morning. Life or church, but most of all life, is all about me. I'm just going to point this out quickly. Here's one of our biggest problems. Here's one of my biggest problems. In my sin, I just think it's all about me. Last night, I walked, last night was a beautiful night, and I walked out of the house, and I was walking over to the church to do some things, and I looked up at the stars, and I was just reminded again last night that I'm but a dust particle. I mean, literally. The Milky Way galaxy that I'm in, there's like 350 billion of those known to men. I'm just like a dust particle. We got away this weekend, we got away Friday for a little while with the kids, and we drove up to Washington, D.C., and spent the day and came back, and I was amazed at how many people, we were going in these museums, there's people just everywhere, and God just really overwhelmed me with how much I think life is about me. I think I am just so important, I think everything just evolves around me, and I just watch hundreds and thousands of people, and I'm like, every one of them has a story. Every one of them is going through something. Every one of them is heading one place or another if they were to die, heaven or hell. Every one of them is somewhere when it comes to their relationship with God. Every one of them has a purpose. Every one of them has been created in the image of God. But somehow I can come back home and get drenched in my little world and think that life is all about Mark. I think that's one of the biggest lies that we've sucked in, that life is all about us. You know what the Bible tells us? The Bible says, do a fact check. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's all about Him. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is true worship. Titus 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The people that God really uses, the people that God really gives joy to, the people that God really does something to change their world with are people that have given up the fact that it's not about them, it's all about Him. You say, then why did you put church up there? Because I think so many times we just take our preferences, we, we live every day based on our preferences, and then we bring it to church, and then we think church is all about us. I read recently where a church got in an argument over about... Uh, um, something that they were uh, doing to the church or something they, they were changing, they got an argument over it. I read the other day about a church that was splitting over whether or not they were going to meet in the auditorium before they went to Sunday school. 
Anybody ever go to a church that met, everybody met, met first or they went to Sunday school? My home church did that. I read about a church the other day, literally, that they have gotten in such a big argument and they are splitting because you got half the group that thinks they should still meet in the auditorium before going to Sunday school and another half that doesn't. And so they're mad about it and they're splitting and the lost people are like, oh, I can't wait to get to that church. Man, there's some stuff happening there. Woo! Sunday's one of the only days of the week that I can really rest. I'm going to go blow two hours at that church. It's sad stuff, isn't it? And it's based around lives that say it's all about me. Here's lie number four. Prayer is not really a big deal. Prayer is not really a big deal. I never will forget one time I was at a youth pastor's conference. I sat down with about 15 other youth pastors around a table, and I asked them the question. I said, how many of your churches have a serious and vibrant congregational time of focused prayer each week? Every one of those youth pastors looked at me and said that they did not have such a time or they had a prayer time, but it was a name only. I said, run that by me one more time. All 15 youth pastors around the table said we either don't have a time where our congregation comes together just to pray or we have a time, but it's just a name only. We really do a bunch of other stuff, but we don't really pray. No one really cares about it because if you do it, they're not coming. That's something, there's something majorly wrong. Here's lie number four. It's when we think that prayer in our life is not really a big deal. I'm going to tell you prayer is everything in your life. It's everything. Some of you sit out here this morning and you say, Pastor, I don't even know how to start. Just talk with the Lord. God, I need you. God, I don't understand. God, help me. Prayer is a majorly big deal. Ian e. Bounds said, prayer is the nerve that moves the mighty arm of God. For many of us, the reason we never see God move mightily in our lives is because we've given up something called prayer. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man makes much happen. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It did not rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now that was praying in the will of God. That was what God ordained for that time. He used Elijah, who was a man just like us, who prayed. But God is a prayer-answering God. And God says that when you're walking right with Jesus, when you're letting the love of Christ swell up in your heart, when you spend time and get on your knees desperate before God, you can plan on seeing things happen. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Matthew 21, verse 13, Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer. I would dare you, I, I would dare you, I don't know who has time to do this, but I would dare you just go around Page County this week and go around to all the churches in Page County and ask them about their congregational prayer times and bring back the results. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Most churches do not pray together. And so we lack power. We lack the supernatural work of God. Here's lie number three. Pastors and Christians have more important things to do than pray and meditate in the Word. We kind of just hit on Christians, but I believe there's a lot of churches out there that say, hey, look, pastor, um, you, you need to move on with more important things. And I think pastors have gulped the lie. I have many times. Today we live in a day where it's no longer the pastor's study. It's now the pastor's office. Pastors struggle with the temptation of being more like CEOs of a business who manage a business than holy men of God who are saturated in the word and prayer and therefore model to their people walking in the spirit. Many pastors have not only caved into the pressure and demands of the populace, leaving them continually running here and there frantically like the culture, but they pressured themselves into believing the lie that they can be spiritual leaders and be used by God while starving themselves of intimacy with Christ. I tell you, I think that's the biggest lie I suck in two-thirds of the year. 
that I can be the man God wants me to be, that I can shepherd the flock, that I can be the pastor God wants me to be, that I can move as a holy man of God in spiritual power without being with Jesus. Would you pray for your pastor about this? You'll notice in your bulletin this morning, there at the bottom of the first page on the left-hand side of the bulletin, your pastor's going away tomorrow and Tuesday. Unless you're dying, do not call me. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm half kidding. I've got people you can call and then they'll call me. I got to get away. I'm just being very honestly with you. I've been a CEO now for about six weeks. Thank you, Carol. <laughs> I'm, I'm hesitant to share this because it's not about me, but I'll just be honest with you. I have sucked in the lie over the past couple of months that I can be CEO instead of a man full of the Holy Spirit, and I can't. And so about six days ago, I emailed, I got to thinking about it, then I emailed the deacons three days ago, and I'm saying, man, I need your help. Monday and Tuesday at spring break here at the school, there's no one going to be around here, and I'm going to be with Jesus. And, and, if, and if there's a need that arises over the next few days, contact your deacon first. If they think it's serious enough, they're going to call me. Uh, if not, I will get back to you on Wednesday. But that's just where things are, because I cannot feed you something that I don't have. And uh, I just, I've spent it out the past few weeks. And you know what? You have weeks like this too. Here's the difference between you and I. It's my job to be filled up so I can feed you. All right? And that's where I'm lacking right now. And so biting in the lie of that you can run the business like a CEO, you can manage everything, you can answer 50 emails a day, you can answer 10 phone calls a day, you can rush and spend time with this person, you can start this program, you can do this, you can do that, and not spend time with Jesus, you run dry. And here's the difference. You do the same thing. You and I struggle with the same thing, that you can rush to work, you can work your 10 hours a day, you can come home, you can do this, you can work on the house, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, and run dry. And when the well runs dry, it's a dangerous place to be. And so I want you to pray about something more than everything. I'm really asking for your prayer tomorrow and Tuesday. That I would be refreshed in the Lord. I would appreciate that. So that I can come and encourage you to be refreshed in the Lord. Here's lie number two. Lie number two. Many churches have sucked this in. It says this. Preaching the literal word of God is not what people need. So many churches have shook off the word of God and they now preach whatever is in the paper or some great moral, but they don't ever open up the scriptures. Some churches you will pass by and the members walk in, no one's carrying a Bible. Why? There's no need to. I'm telling you, the only thing I have to give you as a shepherd is the word of God. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You need God's word more than you need lunch. You need God's word more than you need dinner. You need God's word alive in your heart and soul. You need the literal word of God, and it is the inerrant word of God. Every word of it is from God. It's inspired by God. It is not made up. It is not some fable. It is the only source of absolute truth we have on this planet for all people in all places at all times, and we need to build our lives all over it. And so you pray that your preacher always preaches to you the literal word of God. And here's the last thing. Here's lie number one. It's the biggest one of all. It's the one that all the other ones flow out of. And it's this one. I can live week after week and hidden or secretly believe the lie that Christ is not really better than what I'm living for. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? 
I'm saying when you hold your paycheck and you think about Jesus, which is better? I mean, really. I'm not asking an intellectual question. I'm not asking you to give me the Sunday school answer. Don't you love when your kids come home from church and you say, hey, what'd y'all learn today? God. Anybody ever had that happen? Hey, what'd y'all learn about today? Jesus. Thank you. Uh, what about Jesus? He came. I mean, y'all ever had lunch discussions like this? You know what? So many times we just grow up as adults, and that's, that's really what we do. I'm for real with you. Here's your paycheck. Here's Jesus. Which is better to you? Because whichever one's better, that's the one you're going to put all your time and energy and resources in. What you love is what you go after. You see, the lie is, hey, Christ, I know you're good. I know, I know you're pretty important. I, I know you're, the Bible says you're pretty awesome. But this is really good. This is really what I find my security in. So what I'm going to do is put that right there, and I'm going to put you right there, because we've got to get you in there. Because, you know, I want to go to heaven when I die. We've got to get you in there, and, and I want to be a pretty good Christian, but, but when push comes to shove, that's, that's where we're going to be, okay? But, but Christ, are you okay with that? Maybe it's this. Your dreams, Christ. Which is better? Maybe this one. Your goals for, the, for your life are Christ. Which is better? Family is very important. We've been commanded by God to take care of our families. We've been commanded to do all sorts of things with our families. But let's try this one. Your family, Jesus, which is better. Your church, Jesus, which is better. Your spouse, Jesus, which is better. You climbing the corporate ladder, Jesus, which is better. Your boyfriend, girlfriend, Jesus, which is better. What people think of you, Jesus, which is better. And we can just keep going and going and going. And here's the thing. We'll just be like we'll be just like my kindergartner jumping into the car. Hey, what'd you learn about today, Jesus? What'd he come to do? Die for our sins. Great. Great. What's Jesus doing in your life? I'm not sure. Don't really know. And even as adults, we can give all the Sunday school answers, but live all of our days like all this stuff is really better. But we'll just tack him on. And what that's called is, is lukewarm Christianity. And the Apostle Paul says, examine yourselves. Because Jesus is not only worthy of being on top of all these things, he's worthy of being your all in all. And you know what I found? The more Jesus Christ becomes my all in all, people around me want to know that Jesus. But when people in Page County see me putting all these things on top of Jesus and then I try to invite them to church or I try to tell them a little religious talk and stuff like that, they're just not real interested because they can't see the transformation but when Jesus gets in his rightful place, I'm going to tell you, all sorts of things begin to happen. 
Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me?